Hey everyone. Please uh, turn back in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 13. And uh, we're actually looking at three chapters tonight. So we only read chapter 13, which was long enough in itself. We're also looking at chapters 14 and 15 as well. So make sure you've got a Bible. We've still got a few down the front here. So if you need a Bible, put up your hand and someone will get one for you so you can be following along and know what we're talking about. But now I'll pray uh, before we start. I, I did want to say these chapters actually raise some quite difficult issues. So uh, don't go away with questions. Come and speak to me afterwards if there's things that these passages raise that you're uncomfortable with. Uh, come and talk to me at the end after church. But now I'm going to pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for 1 Samuel and all that it has taught us so far over these weeks, this term. We pray now as we look at this part of your word that you will teach us by it. Uh, and in particular, we pray that it will change us, uh, that we will put our lives underneath your word and that where we are called to repent and change, we will do so. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look at your uh, sermon outline, I've called this talk The Decline of Saul. Uh, but as I started preparing it, I sort of came up with another title, and that is The Car Crash of Saul, because uh, it reminded me, it sent me back to the one car crash I've ever actually been involved in, uh, which was about uh, three or four weeks after I first got my licence, uh, and I was about 17, and I was driving my dad's car, uh, and in fact, that's the worst bit of my memory, is going and telling my dad what I did to his car. That was worse than the car crash itself. But uh, I was driving down this busy road, there were three lanes, it was pouring with rain, and uh, I was doing the right thing. So if you've recently got your L's or P's, you know, you don't use your mirrors to change lane, you look over your shoulder to check. And I kept looking over my shoulder and I couldn't get in on the left-hand lane, and I knew where I wanted to turn was coming up. Uh, and so I looked again, and then this guy, unbeknownst to me, pulled in in front of me and just stopped. And so I just went straight into the back of him. And I, but the thing is, I turned and saw it. And you know how they say that it's like everything slows down and you're in slow motion and you're outside yourself and looking at it? That's the only time in my life I've actually experienced that. Because I, as I turned and looked and I thought, I'm going to crash. And it was like everything was in slow motion and I was sitting outside the car and there was nothing I could do. And I just ploughed into the back of him. He ploughed into the back of the guy in front. I think he went into the back of the guy in front as well. And needless to say, it was good that my dad had insurance that covered a 17-year-old bad driver. But uh, as I read this chapter, it's sort of like that with Saul, these three chapters actually, 13, 14 and 15. It's the decline of Saul and it is just like a slow motion car crash. As you're watching him make dumb decision after dumb decision after dumb decision, you're just sort of there willing him to not do it. Uh, but it's like there's nothing you can do. The, the, the car is on the slippery road and it's just crashing into the pole uh, and it's all over for Saul. And it's an incredibly powerful story, I think, because as we read it, you cannot help but see yourself in Saul. At least I can't. So I hope you see that as we, uh, as we go along. Uh, but first of all, we've got to remember where we are in the story. If you remember, uh, as we come into 1 Samuel, God has been ruling his people how he wants to rule his people. So we've got a bit of a slide up here, uh, our PowerPoint person. Ross. <laughs> so you can see God is ruling how he wants to rule his people. He is the king. Uh, he speaks by his word through the prophet Samuel and God's people listen 
At least they're meant to listen. That's how it's meant to work. And there was no problem with God ruling his people in this way. The only problem was with God's people not listening and obeying. But anyway, after a while, the people weren't happy with that. Samuel was getting old and they said, do you remember, we want a king like the other nations. And that was the most stupid and sinful request they could make. I mean, they have got God going before them and winning their battles for them. That's what they've got. And they said, no, 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 we don't want that. We want a, a human king like the other nations have to go and win our battles for us. They have got God speaking to them directly, if you like, through a prophet, telling them, this is what I want from you. And they go, no, no, we don't want that. We, we want a king to lead us like the other nations. And if you remember, Samuel said, Samuel got all upset about it. He said, you're rejecting me. But God said to Samuel, no, 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 no. They're actually rejecting me. They're rejecting God, their true king. So if we go to the next slide, which has already come up, Effectively, this is what they asked for. They said, we don't want God as our king. We want a king like the nations to rule over us. Uh, and amazingly, God gave them what they asked for. He granted their request. Despite the sinfulness of it, despite the stupidity of it, he gave them this king, Saul. And what was Saul like? He was everything they wanted in a king. He looked impressive. He was tall. He was handsome. He, he, he was the, a head taller than anyone else in the kingdom. He's everything you wanted your leader to look like. So God, though, gave them what they wanted, but he didn't give them everything they wanted. If you remember, he gave them a king, but he said, this is how I want it to be if we go to the next one. He said, I'll still be the king. And I'll still speak my word through the prophet Samuel. And yes, I'll give you this king, Saul, but he has to listen to my word. He has to submit to my word. I don't like saying in the Hebrew, in the Greek, but in the Hebrew, it's interesting. God never calls Saul king. He calls him a prince. He calls him a ruler, but he never says he's a king. So he's sort of giving them what they want, but he's saying, but this is how I want it to work out. I'm happy for Saul to be the king, but his job is to listen to my words spoken through my prophet Samuel. And so with that, by the end of chapter 12, which I hope you looked at in your uh, small groups during the week, uh, there is a genuine sense of hope. There's a genuine sense of excitement that maybe things actually are going to work out all right. Maybe Saul is going to be the king who they should follow because Saul wins some battles and, and the people are behind him and the people are supporting him. And even Samuel affirms Saul and says, yeah, yeah, I'm with you and I'll support you. And so we're thinking maybe Saul will be this right sort of king. Maybe he'll be this king who's not like the other nations, but he's a king who listens to God's word and only leads in the way God wants him to lead. Uh, maybe things will work out well. We can move off that slide now, Ross. But then uh, we come to chapter 13, and this is where the slow motion car crash begins. So look with me at your Bibles. Uh, at this time, the big issue facing Saul and his kingship was the Philistines. That was the big problem. They were Israel's mortal enemy. They had been for years, ever since they'd been in the land. And the thing is, this was a particularly low time for Israel. The, the Philistines weren't just the enemy over the border anymore. They'd actually come into Israel and set up garrisons and forts all through Israel's territory. 
Uh, and in many ways, Israel was sort of like a conquered nation under the Philistines. The Philistines had made it almost impossible for them to have weapons. So we read about that at the end of chapter 13. There are only two iron swords in the whole land of Israel, and that was Saul and his son Jonathan. Everyone else was fighting with wooden clubs and everything. So they were incredibly sort of outnumbered and out-militarized, if that's a word, by the Philistines. And that was the big issue. And in particular, there was a Philistine camp, a Philistine outpost at a place called Gilgal. And back in chapter 10, verse 8, when Samuel had first told Saul, you're going to be the king, all the way back then, he had said, what I want you to do, Saul, is I want you to go to Gilgal, where this Philistine camp is. I want you to go there and wait for me there. And after seven days, I will come and I, because I'm the prophet, you're not the prophet, you're the king, I'm the prophet, I'm going to come and I will make a sacrifice to God and we'll ask for God's blessing and God will show you what you need to do to defeat those Philistines at Gilgal. And so in chapter 13, we pick it up with Saul and he's formed an army. He's got 3,000 fighting men with him, but he's sort of not certain what to do with them. And you have this picture of Saul uh, already. For all his impressiveness, he was really very timid. Uh, remember when they wanted to choose him as the king, what did Saul do? He ran off and hid in the luggage area sort of thing because he, he, he was timid. He, he didn't want to be this. He was uncertain of himself. But his son, Jonathan, wasn't timid and wasn't uncertain. Jonathan just took it upon himself to go and attack another Philistine garrison at a place called Geba, and from then on it was on. And you get this little insight into what sort of a man Saul was and was becoming, a first hint, if you like, in verse 4. So look at verse 4 of chapter 13. You notice Jonathan goes and defeats all the Philistines, and then what does Saul do? He claims the victory was his own, even though he'd had nothing to do with it. He didn't even know Jonathan was doing it. He claims the victory as his own. But now, anyway, the Philistines are fired up. And if you look there at verse 4, it says, Israel is now repulsive to the Philistines. I love some of the verses in these chapters. They're just, they've got a great way of putting it. Israel was repulsive to the Philistines. It's fair to say things were pretty tense. And so both sides come together on opposite sides of a valley at Gilgal. Uh, Saul has 3,000 men, remember, well, now we find out what the Philistines have got. Saul's got 3,000 men. They have 3,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, cavalry, and then as many men as there are sands on the seashore. So Israel is just hopelessly outnumbered at this point and things are really looking awful. Uh, but Saul remembers what Samuel had said to him. Remember, Samuel said, go, wait there seven days, I'll come, do a sacrifice, and God will tell you what to do. And in a way, this was just a great worked example of how everything was meant to work in Israel. Saul was a king, but he was meant to wait for the prophet who shared God's word because God is the real boss. And so Saul did the right thing. He, he waited. He, he waited. He thought, I'll listen. I'll, I'll do what I've been told to do. But that all sounds great in theory. But then Saul was faced with the reality of the situation. See, sometimes doing it God's way just doesn't seem logical, does it? 
It just seems like you're going to miss out and things aren't going to work if you do it God's way and if you follow God's word because Saul sat there for seven days waiting and his men sat there looking at as many Philistines as there is sand on the seashore and what happened to his men? They turned to water. His men started to get scared and they started hiding in caves and hiding behind rocks and climbing down wells and hiding there. And then some of them ran away and crossed the Jordan. And after the seven days, he's gone from 3,000 men to 600 men. And Saul starts to worry. And it must have been tempting for Saul to say, look, I know what God told me to do, but logic tells me I've got to attack now while I've still got some men left. But Saul still waited for seven days. And so it came to the morning of the seventh day and Samuel still hadn't come and all Saul's troops were deserting him. And Saul said, look, I've had enough. I'll have to do it myself. So look at verse 9. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. Then he offered the burnt offering. And wouldn't you know it? Look at verse 10. Just as he finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. Now Saul's probably really excited at this point. Samuel's come at last. This is great. And he'll be impressed with me. I, I, I showed real leadership at last. I did something for myself. And he rushes to greet Samuel. But you notice there's no smile on Samuel's face. Look there at verse 11. He just says, what have you done? Saul's all confused. He's sort of thinking, well, what do you mean? What have I done? My troops were deserting me. You didn't seem to be coming. The Philistines were about to attack at any minute. I needed the Lord's blessing. I, I took matters into my own hands. I did what a good leader should do. I took control. I offered the sacrifice. And it all sounds really reasonable, doesn't it? But then, look, Samuel didn't think so. Look at verse 13. Samuel said to Saul, you have been foolish. You have not kept the command which the Lord your God gave you. And because of that, because you're a fool, Saul, who didn't obey God's command, God is going to take your kingdom away from you forever. Look at verse 13 again. It says, It was at this time that the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel. God was willing to let Saul be the king and his son be the king and his son be the king and his son be the king. But then verse 14, now your reign will not endure. Your kingdom will come to an end, not right now, but it won't endure. Your son will never sit on your throne after you. And it was all because Saul couldn't wait as God had commanded. If he'd waited just 10 minutes more, he would have still been king. And if you have any sense of normality, which is a hard thing to say, I know, but if you have any sense of fairness, I think you would, like me, say, that is so harsh. And you might even be tempted to say, gee, God was unfair to Saul. Yes, he disobeyed God, but who wouldn't have? If you think about it, obeying God for Saul meant going against all the reality of his situation. It meant going against all his experience and all his intelligence and all his circumstances. The Philistines were coming to kill him and his men were deserting him. You see, everything he knew told him obeying God is dumb. Doing what God mustn't have understand, understood things. Things must have changed. There's got to be something different that I've got to do here. And you cannot help but sympathise with Saul, I don't think. 
See, I can't help but think I would have done exactly the same thing. In fact, I probably wouldn't have waited the seven days. I probably would have gone when I knew I had 3,000 men. You see, that is because I am a sinful fool like Saul. And if you'll excuse me being blunt, the reason we sympathise with Saul is because you too are sinful fools like Saul. You see, fools like me think trusting and obeying God is going to be really easy. And we're never going to have to make these difficult decisions. Fools like me think, yeah, 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 obeying God will always match up with what I think is the right thing to do, with what I want to do. You see, when it looks like it fits in with my plans and my assessment of the situation, obeying God is really, really easy because obeying God is just obeying myself. You see, real faith and real obedience is when we do what God says when it looks stupid. Is when we do what God says when it doesn't look like it's best for us. When it means we miss out. When it means we suffer. When it looks like it won't work out how we think it should work out. When our world tells us that God's way is stupid. See, isn't that when you really see whether someone truly trusts God and obeys God. See, if I can be really close to home, I've been trying to think all week of examples where we are tempted to be like Saul. And there's the examples in sort of the minor things of life and so forth, but often it's when we're faced with the really big decisions, or what we think are the really big decisions, that we are tempted to be like Saul. See, there's a bit of Saul in every one of us, I think, I'm really talking from personal experience here. When we decide how we use our wealth and how we use our money. See, that's when we're tempted to be like Saul, you see, because God commands us in his word to be generous with what he gives us. God talks about tithing, giving away 10% or more of your income. And you see, the world says, that is the most stupid thing. Why would you do that? And you see, even your wisdom says, yeah, yeah, I'll be generous in the future when I've got some real money. You know, I'll, I'll make sure I own a house and then I can be generous. I'll tell you, no one who does that is ever generous in the future. If you're not generous when you have a little, you're never going to be generous when you have a lot because you always think you've only got a little. But you see, that's the way our world says, why would you do that? Our financial planner says, no, 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 no. Work out your security and then you can obey God's command. But you see, that is the wisdom of Saul. That is not faith and obedience. It's not easy trusting and obeying God when it costs us. Another one I thought of, and again from personal experience, is when someone is looking for a husband or a wife. I wrote partner in my notes, and I hate that word partner, so I decided I would say a husband or a wife. Uh, you see, and there's this lovely, nice boy or girl, and they're not a Christian. And you say, but what if I miss out? And I really like this person. Then you say, but God's word says I should not be yoked to an unbeliever and trust that I know what's best for you. It's not easy trusting and obeying God when it looks like we're going to miss out. You see, isn't it true we sympathise with Saul because we, like him, think God's commands are things we should take on board as part of our general advice and then we'll decide what's right or wrong? Because that's what Saul does. See, we treat his word as something to be taken into account instead of something to be obeyed and trusted in. 
Please don't be too quick to judge Saul because all too often, I at least, am a fool just like Saul. Don't be too quick to judge him. But here for Saul, the consequences of his disobedience are awful and devastating. Often for us, God by his grace, we make dumb decisions and God by his grace lets us get out of them. But not for Saul here. You see, God through Samuel tells him, you've lost your chance. The kingdom is gone from now on. You'll remain king for now, but know that your kingdom will not endure. But even so, Saul still has a job to do. And that is, we move into the second episode in our chapters tonight. Uh, His job is to deal with these Philistines. And that's what happens in chapter 13, verse 16, through the end of chapter 14. I'm going to rush through this. So if you haven't read it already, please read it for yourself later. Uh, Things are not looking good, as I said before, for Saul and the Israelites. He's down to 600 men. Philistines have got thousands of men. And more than that, the Philistines have chariots and horses and iron weapons. Saul's men have wooden clubs and two swords in the whole army. But what you see in this chapter is a tale of two very different men. See, on the one hand, you have Saul, and Saul is really just lost. He's just lost. He's sitting under a pomegranate tree. I love those little facts the Bible tells you. He's sitting under a pomegranate tree with his men, and he basically just doesn't know what to do. He's sitting there, and and he's lost. And he thinks, maybe I'll get the ark of God out and take that into battle. If you've been reading 1 Samuel, at that point you go, gee, that's a smart idea, Saul. That worked well last time. You know. But no, then he says, no, do you know what I'll do? I'll make this rash oath to God. I'll promise to God that none of my men will eat food or drink water until we've defeated the Philistines. Really dumb move because they're all nearly passing out by the time the battle starts. That's Saul. But then there's Saul's son, Jonathan. And he sees his dad is doing nothing. So Jonathan sneaks out with one other man. So there's two of them. Remember, how many Philistines are there? Too many to count. Jonathan sneaks out and goes on effectively a suicide mission. Uh, Look at what he says there in chapter 14, verse 6. I love this verse. I want this verse to be on a poster like you get from the Christian bookstore. It says, Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapons, come on, let's cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Nothing can keep the Lord from saving whether by many or by few. Isn't that a great verse? God's in control. God's made us promises. doesn't matter if there's 600, 3,000 or two of us. Let's go. Let's do it. I love Jonathan. I think he's great. What's my dad waiting for? If God wants us to win, we'll win. So let's get on with it. And Jonathan just wreaks havoc. If you like these sort of movies, and I don't recommend them, it's a bit like Rambo in First Blood. You know, he just goes in there. Some of you don't even know who Rambo is. But anyway, that's all right. You don't need to know it. They're not helpful in edifying movies. Um, He kills 20 of their men just on his own. And then it says God brings terror down on the Philistines. And they turn on each other because they're so confused. They start killing one another and running off. And all this is going on. And there's all this confusion and all this fear. And what's Saul doing? He's sitting under his pomegranate tree. And then Saul looks out and says, what is going on over there? And they work out, hang on, where's Jonathan? And he's a tenor, where'd they go? And then finally Saul, 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 (laughs) Freudian slip, there you go. Saul 
goes in and joins in when the battle has already been won and finds out that God has done the work already. And not even Saul could claim the credit this time. Look there at verse 23. It says, so the Lord saved Israel that day. It wasn't the king who saved them. It was their real king, the Lord. And in fact, what does Saul do? What does he add to the situation? All he does is stuff it up and make it harder for God and harder for Jonathan. Uh, Because Saul didn't let his men eat, the men are too exhausted to actually chase the Philistines and finish them off. And because of Saul's stupidity, they then have to fight the Philistines for another 40 years. They could have finished them off that day, but Saul, because of his stupidity, has to fight them and David after him for another 40 years. And Saul's stupidity, he even tries to kill Jonathan for disobeying him because Jonathan hadn't heard the rule about not eating. Jonathan grabs a bit of honey he finds, has a bite. Saul says, well, I'm going to kill you because you broke my oath. And it's only that the people are sick of Saul by this point and say, Saul, he's the actual smart one. We're not letting you kill him. So you're seeing what sort of a king Saul is at this point. He may be impressive to look at, but he doesn't have what matters most for a leader of God's people, does he? What is Saul missing? Faith. Trusting that God is the king, that God is in control. Saul does not trust God, at least not enough to obey him. Jonathan, on the other hand, trusts God to save his people and Jonathan acts on it. That's why he's so impressive, even though it looks hopeless. And what you see in Jonathan is a great example of faith in action. Trusting God, trusting that his ways are good, trusting that his ways are best, trusting that he is in control, even if we cannot see how it will ever work out for good. Just going and acting on it anyway. So I think we're meant to see a lesson for ourselves in this. We're meant to sort of see, don't be like Saul, on the one hand, and Follow the example of Jonathan, a man of faith and action, on the other hand. But even so, as I say that, and it's true, in the end, though, I must admit, as I think about my own life, I realised all too often I am far more like Saul than I am like Jonathan. And you see, I think uh, what the failure of Saul does is actually point us forward to what a real leader of God's people should look like. And in reality, to what God's real king should look like. See, because other kings came and went after Saul. David came, and you know, he stuffed up in the end. Solomon came, and he stuffed up in the end. And all these other kings came, and some of them were better than Saul, and some of them were worse than Saul. But in the end, the only real king, the king who came and truly obeyed God's word in everything, is Jesus. And you see, Jesus is the one who is really worth following. Jesus is the one who has saved us from something far worse than the threat of a Philistine army. He has saved us from our sin and from the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin. So you see, yes, follow Jonathan's example. Don't be like Saul. But if that's all you took from this passage, I'd be disappointed. Because I think the real lesson is, remember that God has sent a real king, a real leader worth following, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is worth trusting and worth following and worth obeying. But there's one last episode we're looking at today, and that's in chapter 15. Uh, So open up with me to chapter 15, turn over, that's on page 252. Uh, And if you like, this is where the car finally comes to rest, wrapped around a telegraph pole for Saul. And I, I want to warn you, I mentioned before, this is a really difficult section And it raises all sorts of difficult questions and issues. So if it raises those issues for you, come and speak to me about it. Don't go away and 
uh, and not think it through. So anyway, sometime later, Samuel comes to Saul again. He says, look, Saul, the kingdom's not yours forever, but you're still the king. You've got a job to do that God's given you, and it's a horrible job. Look at chapter 15, verses 2 to 3. It says, this is what the Lord of hosts says. I witnessed what the Amalekites did to the Israelites when they opposed them along the way as they were coming out of Egypt. Now go and attack the Amalekites and completely destroy everything they have. Do not spare them. Kill men and women, children and infants, oxen and sheep, camels and donkeys. There are some parts of the Bible we really cringe at when we read, aren't there? There are some parts that, if truth be told, we're embarrassed by. Uh, and this is probably one of them, especially at the moment, given what is happening in uh, Syria and Iraq in the name of other gods and it's happening to Christians in the name of other gods and we cringe at this and say, is our God any better? Now you've got to ask the question, why did God want the Amalekites destroyed? And you need to know your history from the Old Testament here. The Amalekites had been deeply and totally opposed to God and his people for hundreds of years. And they had had warning after warning about the consequences of that. They were the descendants of Esau. Remember back at the beginning where there was Jacob and he had his 12 sons and they are the tribes of Israel and Esau was the other brother. They are the descendants of Esau and they consistently, even though they knew God, chose to worship other gods and attack and abuse God's people. That's what they did for hundreds of years. And in particular, at the moment Israel came out of slavery in Egypt, when they were at their weakest in the desert, it was the Amalekites who came and tried to wipe them out. That was what the Amalekites did to God and his people. And God had warned over and over again that they as a people would be judged for their sin, that they would be wiped out forever. So you see, what's happening here wasn't a bulk from the blue where God just arbitrarily says, I don't want to see the Amalekites anymore. What God is calling on Saul to do here is to actually act out his righteous judgment on these people. See, the king didn't have the right to decide who he should kill and who he shouldn't kill. It wasn't Saul's job to do that. This was God's righteous and fair judgment for their sin and for their abuse of God and his people. And it was to be total destruction. Now, often Christians want to apologize for God in the Old Testament. And I've got to tell you, as I was preparing this during the week, it was very, I'm going on holidays during next, after this Sunday, and it was very tempting for me to think, you know what, I think chapter 15 goes more with chapter 16 next week, and uh, uh, Troy or Kevin can deal with that after I'm gone. Uh, and I read lots of books where people apologise for God and they say, look, our understanding of God has evolved since this and there's a different morality now. And I want to tell you that is not right. That is wrong. It is not our job to apologise for God. God does not change and his morality does not change. God will do what God will do and it's not our right to question if it is right or just or fair. If he does it, it is. Now, you see, what is different now is that we do not have the right to act out God's judgment in this way. We are not God's instruments here on earth for judgment. No human being is here on earth now. People who now kill in the name of God, like these people in Iraq at the moment, are an abomination and are bringing God's judgment on themselves. 
We are not God's king. Jesus is. We do not have the right to exercise God's judgment on others. We leave that to God. As Christians, in fact, what are we called on to do? To love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. That's the difference now. But what this reminds us is that God hates sin. That's why this is here. It's to remind us, remind us that God still hates sin. And he reserves his most awful wrath for those who turn their back on him and especially those who persecute his people. See, and one day God's true king will return. That is our Lord Jesus Christ. One day he will return and that is when God's judgment will come on all of humanity. When Jesus returns, he says he will judge the living and the dead once and for all. See, part of the message we preach to the world, part of the gospel we believe, is that people who have not turned to find forgiveness in Jesus will face God's awful and eternal judgment. In Acts 10, 42, uh, the apostle said this, Jesus commanded us to preach to the people, and to solemnly testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and of the dead. You see, what we see here in 1 Samuel is a small one-off foretaste of the awful reality that awaits all of humanity if we do not turn to Christ. And in the end, the reason I struggle so much with this, and you do too probably, uh, is that deep down we don't actually think our sin is worthy of God's judgment. Deep down, we're a bit like Saul and we think our sin isn't that bad and doesn't really deserve God's judgment. And frankly, for that, we need to stop apologising for God and we need to repent ourselves. See, what uh, Romans 6.23 is, says is the wages of sin is death. That's the reality. If we are sinners, we deserve death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, you can only actually understand how wonderful our salvation is, how wonderful what Jesus has done for us is, if we first understand just how much we deserve God's judgment. But back to our story. God couldn't have been more clear what he wanted Saul to do. So Saul gathered his army and he went. And there's a wonderful little moment in verse 6 where you meet the Kenites. Who goes on beach missions here? When I first went on a beach mission, I led the Kenites section. And here are the Kenites. So there you go, Kenites were year one and two on the beach mission I was at. But these Kenites, they were with the Amalekites. And Saul, you notice, he makes a point, if you look at verse 6, of going and warning them so they can escape. And what you see there is that God's judgment is not arbitrary and unfair. The Kenites had not sinned against God in the same way that the Amalekites had, so they were spared. But then Saul sets to the Amalekites, and as I read it out, just tell me what's wrong. Verse 7. Then Saul struck down the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is next to Egypt. He captured Agag, king of Amalek, alive, but he completely destroyed all the rest of the people with the sword. Saul and the troops spared Agag and the best of the sheep, cattle and choice animals, as well as the young rams and the best of everything else. They were not willing to destroy them, but they did destroy all the worthless and unwanted things. What's wrong with that? Saul's at it again. God said, destroy everything. 
Yet again, Saul treats God's commands as a rough indication of what he should do, but he actually knows better. And I think he probably, scared, he probably spared Agag because he thought, well, I don't want to get in the business of killing other kings because when other nations attack us, I don't want to get killed. And I think the reason he wanted the good livestock was just pure greed. But Saul yet again knows better than God. So God speaks to Samuel and says, I regret that I've ever made Saul king. Uh, and Samuel goes and confronts Saul. And if it weren't so tragic, it would be really funny. Look at chapter 15, verse 12. It says, early in the morning, Samuel got up to confront Saul, but it was reported to Samuel, Saul went to Carmel where he set up a monument for himself. Again, it's an insight into the reality of sin, isn't it? That's what we do. We make ourselves the, the monument rather than God the monument. Then verse 13, when Samuel came to him, Saul said, May the Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. And I love this bit. Samuel replied, Then what is this sound of sheep and cattle I hear? If you've got the NIV or the ESV in front of you, I actually prefer it here. It's one of my favourite verses. Samuel said, What then is the bleating of sheep in my ears? God said, Destroy it all. And Samuel says, It's like I'm at a petting zoo here. You've kept all the, the sheep and the cattle. And Saul knows he's in the wrong. But like every one of us, he tries all the tricks in the book to justify why it was right for him to disobey God. And if you yourself, and I know you have, have ever been in sin of any sort, you know this, don't you? We're very good at justifying ourselves and explaining why God's commands are great for everyone else, but not for me because my circumstances are different. So Saul says, it wasn't me, it was my troops. And we only kept them, he's got to come up with, we were going to sacrifice them to God. That's why we kept the sheep and the cattle. We're so good at doing that, aren't we? We're good at giving excuses. We're, we're, we're good at explaining why we're the exception to the rule, why God's ways are perfect for everyone else but not for me. We're good at pointing at what we did do right, as if that justifies what we didn't do and what we did wrong. And we're good at trying to pretend that doing the form of religion might make God happy and, and might make up for the fact that we've disobeyed him with the rest of our lives. Saul tries all of those, but it's the last excuse that Samuel picks up on. Look with me at verse 22. Then Samuel said, does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. If I can bring this forward to us and talk to you here at Church in the Bank now in 2014, what Samuel is saying to you is, and to me, God does not want your religion. God hates religion. God does not want people who say, I go to church in the bank on a Sunday night and then live as if he doesn't exist in all the decisions they make in the rest of their week. See, for us, this side of Christ, God wants us to give our lives to Jesus. That's what he wants from us. He wants us to listen to his word and believe it and act on it and live by it, even when it makes us look stupid in the world. God wants us to trust him in everything and live lives of faithful obedience. That is what God wants from his people, not hypocritical religious people who come to church and then act as if he doesn't exist with the rest of their time. God wants lives of faith. That's what he wants. 
And so Samuel just pushes Saul out of the way and just takes the sword and kills Agag himself. And Saul pleads with Samuel, please help me, please forgive me. And Samuel just turns his back and walks away from him. And Saul reaches out and he grabs Samuel by the cloak as sort of the last thing of please, please, please let God stay with me. But Samuel walks away and the cloak rips and that's the end for Saul. It's like God and his prophet have left the building and Saul is doomed from that point on. But of course, God's plans for his people weren't doomed. This king was a failure, was a car crash, uh, and it is a tragedy. But God's plans carried on. Because straight after this, and we're going to read about it next week, God raised up a king after his own heart, King David. But even David sinned. Not in the same way as Saul, but even David sinned. And so what this story does is it reminds us that we have the one true king who will never fail us. That's what it's meant to make us do. We look at Saul and we see a tragedy, but then we look forward to the king who obeyed his father in everything, our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who obeyed his father even to the point of dying for our salvation. And because of that, we know that the kingdom we are a part of will never end. It will be never be torn away from us because he offers hope and salvation for anyone who trusts in him, even fools like Saul and fools like me. But the other thing, and my final point, is this chapter is a reminder to us that our King Jesus is also the judge. Please remember this. Jesus came the first time to offer salvation, and he has done that. He has held off returning, though, to give as many people as possible the opportunity to hear the good news, repent and trust in him and so find salvation. But when Jesus returns, that is it. When Jesus returns, it will be to bring judgment. And we have to remember, that is the time we live in now. The reason we are here now, your calling if you follow Jesus, is to warn of the judgment to come to warn that Christ, God's true King, will return one day to judge the living and the dead and to then share with people the message of hope, the gospel, that while in the future he comes to judge, he has already come and offers salvation from that judgment. That is why we live now. That is the only reason Jesus has not returned to judge. It is to give the opportunity for as many people as possible to repent and trust in Christ. And I want to say to you, if you have been sitting here in Church in the Bank even for years or tonight is your first night and you are someone who has not turned and trusted in Christ, do it tonight because he could return at any moment and when he does, there are no more chances. That is the awful truth of the world. But it is the wonderful truth that Jesus offers hope and forgiveness if we will just turn and trust in him. So I want to say to you, if you have been sitting here and you have had the form of hypocritical religion and you've not been living a life of faith in Christ Jesus, tonight, make it the night where you turn and trust in him. And if you want to do that, pray with me right now because I'm going to lead us in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have a king who is worth following. 
our Lord Jesus, who truly obeyed you in everything, even to the point of dying to take the punishment we deserve for our sin. And we pray that if there is anyone here tonight who does not yet trust in Christ Jesus and live for him, that tonight might be the night where they make that decision to do just that. And for all of us, we pray that we might live in the light of Jesus' second coming. That we might be people who, because we know his salvation, we seek to share it with others so that we might give them the chance to repent and so find forgiveness with us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.